Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, episode 75 for the love of the game. Let's roll. One. One, two. Check me out right here, yo. Yo, the sun don't shine forever, but as long as it's here, then we might as well shine together. Better head. now than never. Business before pleasure. P. Diddy and the fam, who you know do it better. Yeah, right. No matter what, we airtight. Yeah. So when you hear some, make sure you hear it right. Don't make it yeah. out of yourself Not by assuming my music keeps you moving. What are you proving? You know that yeah. I'm two levels above you, baby. Love me, baby. I'ma make you love me, baby. Don't get crazy, ain't gonna get you nothing but choke. And that jealousy is. All right, you know what it is. Episode 75 for the love of the game. And yeah, not much has changed since the last episode. This no sports thing. Yeah, it's really not doing well for my well-being. It's kind of like the Jews wandering into the desert after they left Egypt, shouting out for water. Uh, I figured I'd throw that in there because uh, Passover is this week. Uh, Passover will be upon us uh, Wednesday night. Uh, and to all my listeners, happy Passover. And for those who celebrate Easter, happy upcoming Easter as well. So, yeah, that's where I'm at right now, as many of us are just like me, uh, a little lost at the moment um, and, and just searching for something. So I've been watching quite a few movies lately, catching up on a few that fell through the cracks. Shout out to Movie Reviews with AT Hizzy on Instagram. But I need to feel what it's like to watch sports. So besides for classic NBA clips and highlights on YouTube, I'll hop on NBA TV Hardwood Classics. They were airing Game 7 of the NBA Finals from 1994 between my beloved New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets, one of my earliest memories as a basketball fan. And I watched it, reliving the pain all over again, reigniting my dislike for Charles Smith, uh, just so I can feel what it's like just to feel the emotion and the pain and the heartbreak of being a sports fan. Because even as painful as being a Knicks fan is, I would so much rather have that pain right now than be without it. By the way, I have kind of a uh, kind of a hot take for Knicks fans. I'm not sure they're going to like to hear it, but here it is. So Charles Oakley, a ride-or-die Nick. Well, as ride-or-die as he was, loyal as he was, Well, he wasn't very good at playing basketball. He did all the little things well, all the dirty work, but in terms of actually playing the game of basketball, wasn't very good. Anyway, it's been a really rough couple of weeks, uh, as you can probably hear in my voice. With that said, uh, the show must go on. Uh, A little NFL news that I forgot to touch on last time. The QB carousel continues. Cam Newton is now a free agent. Jameis Winston as well. It'll be very interesting what the market will uh, will be like for these guys, considering many teams ha- either have their guy, their QB of the future or the present, or will be uh, looking to draft someone in the draft in a couple of weeks. Cam Newton was the MVP of the league not that long ago. Crazy how fast things can change in the NFL. I mean, he's also been banged up, and honestly, he's played kind of shitty the last few years. But yeah, it was 2015 where they went to the Super Bowl and he was the MVP. He was on top of the league, and now he's looking for a new home. A puzzling move that I forgot to mention last episode, Phil Rivers to the Colts. I mean, have the Colts seen Phil Rivers play the last two years? Is he that much better than a healthy Jacoby Brissett? Now, Brissett started out the season hot. He finished the season really, really poor, but he was banged up. But Jacoby Brissett, when he was healthy, I'm not sure he's that much worse than Phillip Rivers. To pay Phillip Rivers what he's getting paid versus Jacoby Brissett, I'm not sure what the Colts are doing. I mean, does this move... Limit the calls from drafting a quarterback? I mean, who knows? Oh, and the Atlanta Falcons signing Todd Gurley after he was cut by the Rams. There was a graphic that was posted everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, that the Falcons projected starting offense will have something like 10 former first-round picks in it. Needless to say, I will be shorting the Atlanta Falcons when the season starts. Hopefully the season will start. On to the NBA, or I should say basketball, a couple of things. One, the Michael Jordan 10-part documentary that will be airing on ESPN and Netflix will be dropping April 19th. It's titled The Last Dance, uh, about the uh, their last championship run in 1998. Well, it was bumped up given the current state of affairs. I think it was supposed to air in August, 
and now it's going to be in April. I cannot wait for this documentary to come out for a couple of reasons. One, it's going to be awesome and will fill a major void for basketball fans who are searching for some type of basketball content to watch. And two, to all the noobs who honestly think that LeBron James is the greatest player to ever play, well, those uneducated fools will be properly educated after this. Michael Jordan is the most compelling character in the history of sports, outside of just his greatness as a player. I mean, just everything, the mystique around him, his aura, there is no one else in sports history close to him in this regard. This documentary is going to do insane ratings. It's going to be must-watch television, and you're going to have to watch it live, and I can't wait to watch it. By the way, not to plug anybody else's podcast, because obviously you should be listening to mine first and foremost, but if you love the NBA and the NBA draft and going back to old drafts, Bill Simmons has been doing redrafts on his podcast, and they're absolutely amazing. Uh, Ryan Rossillo is heavily involved. My guy, I know. Uh, I'm a sucker for this type of stuff. I mean, this is basically, he could do this during the year when there are live sports on it, I'll love it. But again, download and listen to my show first. And then you can give Bill uh, a listen and a download. So the Basketball Hall of Fame class has been announced. It's been headlined by Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant, and Kevin Garnett. It's a star-studded class, especially at the top. It was exceedingly appropriate that only these three NBA players got voted in this year. Three players that define their era. Chris Bosh, I know he was a little salty about not getting in this year. He'll get into the Hall of Fame soon enough. He can wait a little bit. Chris Webber, he's been super salty and been snubbed before. He'll get in eventually as well. But this class deserved to be about those three guys, three of the best 20 players of all time. And there's always this question of older guys, how could they fit in today's NBA? And and these guys kind of overlapped in today's NBA, even though it wasn't at their peaks. All of them in their primes would have been great if you put them in their primes in today's league. But to me, the guy who would benefit the most if his prime overlapped with today's league is Kevin Garnett. I mean, think about Giannis with a better jump shot. I mean, Kobe would have been James Harden, but better in every way, especially on the defensive end. Tim Duncan, think about Joel Embiid's impact on offense and on defense, and that would have been Tim Duncan. What a class. I mean, all three of those guys, just unbelievable careers. I, I loved watching all three of those guys play. And it's still eerie to think about that Kobe Bryant won't be around to give his Hall of Fame induction speech. It really, it's been a little, about three months now since uh, he died in the uh, helicopter accident. And uh, I still, still coming to terms with it, still can't believe it. So congrats to the entire Hall of Fame class of 2020. A truly, truly great class uh, headlined by three unbelievable, unbelievable NBA players. One last point before bringing on to tonight's guest, somebody who I've been circling for a while and I'm extremely excited to talk to, a first-time guest, uh, maybe my most high-profile guest when it comes to sports media. So every sport is thinking of ways to get games back on TV, at least, even without fans, just to get the games being played. The NHL is thinking about a neutral site of North Dakota, the NBA possibly taking over Las Vegas. These are a couple of things that have been floated out the last couple of days. Now, I got to admit, it's pretty bleak, but I choose to be hopeful that something will happen. I know Brian Windhorst from ESPN tweeted and was on Get Up this morning that the NBA is leaning towards canceling the season. I'm holding out hope. Until Adrian Wojnarowski tweets it, I'm holding out hope that something can be done. And I hope for everyone's sake that I don't have my heart broken again, but let's hope and pray that we get a solution soon. And with that being said, I uh, can't wait to welcome uh, a very special, important guest to talk about his latest venture in the next couple of moments. Okay, I teased it a little bit before, but tonight I have an exceedingly special guest. Given the circumstances, I may not have been able to get this guy on before, but I'm lucky enough to have him on. Writer for Bleacher Report just wrote a great book about the Philadelphia 76ers, Mr. Yaron Weitzman. Yaron, thank you so much for coming on. What's going on, man? What's up, man? I'm good. Hanging in there. Aren't, aren't we all? So first of all, before we get into uh, talking about the book a little bit in the project, you're a basketball junkie just like I am. It is your day job. 
What are you doing during this time period when nothing's on? How are you staying sane? Um, so <laughs> this is uh, I saw. Did you see the meme? Yes, ping passed around. It was and it was Mel. G- and this is good, you know. Two Jews can reference the Mel Gibson meme from Passion of the Christ. But Mel Gibson yes. talking to um, what was it? Caviezel was that the actor's name? The bloody um, all bloodied up and kind of ex- it was someone. Someone captioned it, you know, when explaining my quarantine life to my friends who don't have kids, who have kids or whatever. I know I'm butchering that. But basically, my what I'm going to say is uh, I don't have free time. <laughs> we, we got me and my wife and two kids under three in a uh, two-bedroom apartment. We're basically swapping. We're both working and swapping. So I am uh, I am jealous of all the people who say they have free time. They need things to fill their time. Um, so that said, yeah, I mean, I don't know. For me, it's more about trying to find some kind of stories that – would resonate either relate to what's going on or just are so random that they work anyway. So that's kind of the challenge now. Well, I'm not one with, uh, with children just yet, but I'm living with my sister and brother-in-law and we have, uh, I have two wonderful nephews. One is two and one's about four and a half months. So I can kind of commiserate a little bit. So I, I, I hear you. We'll jump right in. I mean, so what inspired you to tackle this project, writing about the Sixers and tanking to the top? Um. Yeah, my answer is always, is always I feel like disappointing on this one. Um, right. So I, I covered the NBA for Bleacher Report. Um, I'm a quote unquote national writer, which I don't say that to make myself sound important. Just I say that to explain what the job is. Right. Which means in New York, I'm in New York. But I'm supposed to find stories that a national audience would find interesting. Um, that's very hard to do when the Knicks are the team in New York. So I often have to leave New York. And so around 2017, 2018, I started heading down to Philly a little bit. Um, cause you can kind of tell that they were a team on the rise between Simmons and Bede and the process as the backdrop. And, um, so I was around them a little bit. I actually did a, maybe a profile or two on Simmons, um, a couple other things. And, uh, then the, during the playoffs, um, on a train back, I remember, um, thinking, oh, this seems like a good book idea. And, uh, kind of got the ball rolling there and in July. So that was around April or May. Um, in July as in summer league and I kind of that's when I kind of got my not kind of that's when I got my book deal so it's almost like it's not like I was uh, inspired to write the story or anything um, doesn't mean I wasn't into it but it was more of uh, oh I'm around this seems like there could be a good book I don't see anyone else doing it which was not totally true um, let me see if I can figure this out well I mean the Sixers over the last six seven years are, are just a fascinating test case in terms of going against the grain, you know, trying something new. I mean, just morally for, for those of us who think of sports as, as like a moral or having a moral compass, like actively trying to lose games and not putting out a good product, you know, does, does the, uh, does the results like merit all the, all the things that go into getting results? I probably butchered that statement. I've got coronavirus brain but yeah i mean it's uh, it's an absolutely uh fascinating test case in terms of team building culture building um what was the most interesting nugget that you learned from researching this book i mean i know that you obviously you follow the league all the time. you follow the league professionally but you followed the league beforehand so so you're you know you're an nba fan first and foremost and and watching the sixers from afar but what was the like the one nugget uh through the deep dive of research that you didn't know before um, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to say there was more than one, right? Uh, if it was only one, probably wouldn't be a great book, but no, there were a bunch. There was, um, you know, a random one is Brian Colangelo after being fired or whatever his official, maybe he resigned. I don't remember what it was officially. Um, after that, um, helping convince Jimmy Butler to go to the Sixers. Um, there was some of the stuff about this guy named Scott O'Neill, who's a Sixers, uh, business executive, the role he played in Hinky being pushed out. Um, how on board ownership was with the whole plan from the beginning. Um, I think that's something that's maybe known, but I don't know if I knew that to that extent. Um, a lot of the stuff about Embiid's, um, Embiid's conditioning and diet and you know how he can be, while being a great basketball player, he can be um, a bit difficult behind the scenes. So there's a bunch. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to nail the one. It's, uh, yeah, a, a lot of really great stuff uh, that was talked about behind the scenes. So let's, let's jump into the star of the book. The star of the book is Sam Hinkie, who was the mastermind behind this whole deal, tanking for three years, just completely bottoming out after Doug Collins had gotten them to the playoffs. Uh, they won that first round series against the Bulls. It's the famous uh, series where Derrick Rose tears his ACL for the first time, get to game seven uh, with the Boston Celtics. And then 
they kind of realized that this is fool's gold, and they went the completely opposite way. Uh, Doug Collins was pushed out. They tear the whole thing down. Andre Iguodala's traded. Eventually, Drew Holiday's traded. Strip the whole thing down to parts, and they're basically winning somewhere between, you know, ten and twenty games a season for what was it three or four straight years, right? It was uh, so it, into the third year is when Hinky got pushed out. Yeah. So where do you stand? Um, and I think you did a good job of of not really showing your hand. Uh, when writing the book in terms of what were your, I guess, what was your opinion on Sam Hinkie? Where do you stand on Sam Hinkie and and his tactics? Were you pro Hinkie or were you anti Hinkie? Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a pro, like not, this is not from some, I mean, yeah, journalistically I'm supposed to be say this, but I still don't know. Like, I don't, I don't have a, a, I'm pro or against. I think there are things that I thought he did well and things I disagreed with. Um, like for like for things he did well, like I don't think there's any question that tanking is a good strategy, right? In terms of taking advantage of the system that if you're bad, you get a good draft pick, especially in the NBA where you recognize you need a superstar basically to um to win, right? Um, to win a championship. Um, there. So that part I have no issue with. I like that's well, before, like a yeah. Go ahead. The caveat that they they've changed the rules now because of it. They've flattened the uh, the lottery odds, which of course screwed our New York Knicks. No, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not our, your, your. Don't forget. But that's uh, correct, right? You're, you're a, net, you're a national writer. I'm sorry, my New York news. But, uh, but what's it called? Uh, no, for sure. And I think that's like you know sometimes people say, well, you think. Um, I've been asked a few times, like, would another team do this? And I think between the flattening of the lottery odds and the idea, the shorter contracts and superstars becoming available, um, and coming on the market more frequently, um, and more regularly, I don't know if I still would, right? Um. I think some of the, the math behind it has tilted, has pushed it where maybe this isn't a good idea. Um, but so in terms of the, I don't th- I think tanking is a good strategy. I think he misread some things politically in terms of how small world the NBA is, um, in terms of how you have to deal with agents a certain way, even if you don't like it, you don't have to kiss their ass. But like there's, you know, you, it's like to use, it's repeat customers, right? And that's going to happen. Um in terms of the job is to also keep the job. And I also think he could have used a little more, um, a different view, a little more experience in the room with him. Um, so I always use the example, like I, he never hired like an Elton brand net who like the current GM, right? An Elton brand type as a number two for him would have been really fascinating. Um, but it, but I, it seems like though he didn't want anybody around him. Like he was extremely isolated and he kept his circle very, very small. So do you honestly think that given that caveat that he would even welcome somebody else's opinion from the outside who was more of a player's uh, eye test kind of guy? Yeah, well, I think I think that was a mistake, right? I don't know if he would, but I think that was a mistake. Um the idea that he that like the idea that he didn't take another view, right? Yeah, it's interesting because he's somebody you know he preaches these things and it's it's very Silicon Valley like um, speech or language. The idea you know multiple multiple uh, views, all different perspectives, and yet when it came down to it, his um, his main team it was him, this guy Sachin Gupta and this guy Ben Falk, um, both really smart people, both people who did not get their start, did not play basketball at any high level. Um, ben Falk runs the website now cleaning the glass. Sasha Gupta actually created the trade machine, which is pretty cool. Um, that was an awesome to... nugget that I did not know. Yeah, now Very he's Very in... cool, because I've now been on he... that thing for who knows how many hours. <laughs> so now he's an executive in Minnesota. Um, so these are really smart people, um, and really good people, I think. Um, but you're just still you're, you're coming at the game from the same way, and I think they could have used someone else in there. So I don't – would he have listened? I don't know, but I think that was one of the mistakes. One of the so mistakes. For... Right. So before we get into, you know, I guess the non-basketball things like, you know, culture and, and Hinky's personality, we should just like I, I want to break down kind of, you know, Hinky's major moves per se. Right. Kind of play like, you know, Colin Coward does the thing when Colin was right, when Colin was wrong. Uh, Sam, I actually well, don't listen to cowards regularly, but I will take your uh, take your take word your, uh, my word for it. I, again, I'm I'm a junkie for this stuff. It's it's sick. But so where Sam was right and where Sam was wrong. So if you had to pick his three best moves, um, forward thinking moves, moves, what were they? What would they have been? And then um, his three worst moves. Oh, okay. Well, three best moves. Embiid drafting Embiid has to be number one. Um. 
That was a good one. Um, that's a that's a good question. You're gonna put me on the spot. I feel like I need to queue up his uh his basketball reference page as we're talking. Um, I mean, is Robert Covington signing him was probably you know again these aren't genius moves. Oh, that's kind of stumbled onto something. I'm trying to think if there was like a crafty move. Um, there were some trade. I mean, <laughs> I don't like this move. Um, the oh, I'm I mean, one I'm forgetting. Okay, so let's say Embiid won the trade with the Kings, number two. The uh, where they get the number five pick was that the lottery pick, whatever that one ended up being. Um, yeah. I forget the exact deal. Maybe I don't know if you have it in front of you. So that had to be number two. Um, then there were the moves. I mean, best I don't know. He had some crafty moves that like how he he circumvented the salary floor by like trading for Javale McGee for a day so that his salary can count for the season and they you know they can get out of paying the players an extra twenty million. I don't think that helped as a basketball or basketball standpoint. Um, I think. Well, uh, you could also uh, argue that that was a that that was a move that alienated all the players and the agents. But I guess that's more towards like outside of basketball. Correct. Was the, was the Michael Carter Williams trade? I know I should know this. That was a separate trade than the Kings trade, so that would probably be number three when they got a lottery pick for him, right? Yeah. Um, so the, those would probably be my top three. Which in red, which you know, looking back was was awesome because Michael Carter Williams hasn't shown flashes like he did that rookie year. I mean, not even close. To me, his understanding that second round picks shouldn't just be throw-ins. Yeah. And that he was hoarding these second round picks because, as he said, you know, we're trying to toy, you know, the draft isn't perfect. We're trying to take as many swings at the plate as we can. And even though that, you know, the likelihood that somebody at the uh, in, in the second round isn't going to turn out to be a star like somebody is in the top of the first round, like one, two, three high lottery. It's still a swing at, at the plate. It's still an at bat. And uh, to me, that was like. You know, the fact that he figured that out when so many GMs before him were just willing to throw second round picks into deals when they didn't have to. I mean, that was that was extremely smart. For sure. For sure. Right. It was kind of he that he was ahead of the curve on that stuff. For sure. Now, where where did he go wrong in terms of basketball personnel? I mean, obviously, the big one is not taking Kristaps Porzingis. Yeah, though again, that like it's easy. We can get into that. Like I can, I I see why that happened, and I think um, I don't think that was necessarily a poor basketball move. I think like I what they I think what they figured is that Okafor they knew it wasn't a great fit, but he'd be okay in year one. You know, put up seventeen and eight, and like you know, Michael Carter Williams put up empty numbers. They got a lottery pick for him, so they kind of figured they'd do a similar thing for Okafor, and you know, you could trade him or someone else. And try um, and it, on stupid GMs who didn't yeah. realize that he's putting up empty calorie stacks. Yeah, and it probably would have worked, and it probably would have, you know. And Okafor, you have to remember, he was like a top, like he might have been the top prospect coming out of high school. Um, yeah, sure. So if the if the off court stuff isn't there, I don't know if that's looked back as looked back um, or viewed so poorly. Um, so if you're asking me, worst moves, oh, that's tough. He didn't really make too many bonehead ones. I mean, there's obviously that. Um, Nerland's Noel, the Drew Holiday for Nerland's Noel trade is fascinating because I think they lost. You can basically say they lost that trade, right? But it also they they needed it to tank. It's just, so it's a fascinating question, right? They ended up being Drew Holiday for was it Nerland's and Dario Saric, I think, um, which you would say is not a good trade. Um, it's really interesting though because I don't know, like you know, if they do that, they don't get Embiid, right? So, um, yeah, well, worse, I mean, yeah. Drew, it, it's unclear with Embiid because obviously. He was the most talented player in that draft, but the medical thing with his feet scared so many teams off, and Hinky wasn't afraid to stash a guy for a year or two to try and get other top picks. So I'm not sure. Now, I don't know if Drew Holiday is winning enough games to take them out of the Embiid sweepstakes, per se, but who knows? Yeah, come to think of it, he didn't really have that many boneheaded moves besides for the... uh, not taking Porzingis. Well, that, I mean, that's one of the things, right? So he wasn't – the draft was the only time he was um, – he was – he was – he was – I don't know, rolling the dice. It's not even the right word, right? The, the draft was the only time he was betting on somebody. How about that, right? Otherwise, they weren't bringing players in. So it's hard to say, like, if you're not signing anybody to a $20 million contract or a two-year $30 million thing um, – you know, it's you're not gonna mess up, right? Because if your mess up is bringing in Tony Roden, like that's not a mess up. Who cares, right? You can have a revolving door of those guys. So that's part of the thing. And one of the questions about him is like, what would have happened when you know you reach phase two, and you have to start actually betting on guys and betting on who's worthy and who's not. And that's where it's a different skill set. 
I would have kind of bet on Tony Roten. I kind of always had a soft spot for him no, there you as, go. <laughs> as a fan. So I'm not necessarily sure I'm cut out to be this uh, uh, <laughs> general manager of an NBA team, even though I've convinced myself that I could have done a better job than what the Knicks have done over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Well, that's, I mean, that's, yeah. Who, who that, hasn't? So. That, that's who, not who setting wouldn't? a high bar, isn't it? It's just exactly. the, the uh, you know, it's really not a great uh a great deal of, you know, high bar to shoot for. Anyway, so moving on to, so where Sinky, Hinky really went wrong was just his his uh, personality and the way he acted. Um, so I guess if he didn't act like a jerk to agents and to the media and some of the fans. Uh, and, and Now, you said jerk. I, d- I did not say jerk. Well, okay, yes. I Well, I, I think he acted like a jerk. Like, he just wasn't a friendly guy. And part of the, the job is being, you know, media friendly and media savvy and, and knowing how to play that game. But he clearly didn't know how to play that game. If he knew how to play that game a little bit better, do you think he'd still be employed by the Philadelphia 76ers? Um, so yes and no. The media part, I think it's overblown. Like he spoke to reporters just usually on background off the record. And, you know, honestly, it's funny. And this was different back then, but, um, uh, like even the past few years, right. A lot of GMs and presidents don't talk to the media really on the record. Like the Knicks just hire Leon Rose. He didn't even have a press conference. Right. So this is common. Um, the part about the playing the game. So whether it's not trying to hammer an agent on a contract, you know, with a negotiation with a second round pick, um, or not trying to, or not worrying about, um, you know, whether another, like not trying to hammer every opposing GM on a trade, things like that. But the thing is, and the, the counter to that is, let's say the opposing trade is, the reason you go for those deals and the reason you always try to rip everyone off is because sometimes you stumble into a Vladi Divac on the Kings, right? And you get a great deal. Um, so I think the bigger issue was just an unwillingness to, I mean, so that was part of it for sure, right? Yes. Yeah, so the answer is yes. Like if he, maybe if he played the media game a little more, he would have had some more public friends and the narrative might have changed a little bit and that could have trickled into the league office and changed things and allowed him to stay around. Um, I think it was just at a certain point. I don't know. There, there was no one thing that caused him to be ousted, right? It was like a mix of ten different things. So it's hard to say one, if like one thing changes, would it all have changed, right? It was not not having proper leadership um, from veterans, and I don't just mean any veterans because some veterans are bad leaders, but actually having some guys who could help out a Jaleel for and you know realize he's drinking too much and kind of get him to stop, or um, you know helping. Maybe if he was more of a hammer for Brett Brown a little bit in terms of some of the accountability things on the court, um, that could have helped. So I don't know. To answer your question, like, sure, but I don't even know what, like, there's no one thing. It's kind of asking him to change his entire personality, right? And I don't know if that would happen. Do you think he could get another job in the NBA today? Um, He probably could, not for everyone. And then, like, then you have the other counter who'd be the teams he'd be willing to work for and if you took those two lists you'd be down to like i don't know maybe one or two teams and so i just i I don't i don't expect him to come back you're saying the venn diagram between yes exactly willing to give him complete autonomy and teams that he's would be willing to work for you're saying it's a very small middle ground exactly 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 now do now i know you had trouble getting in touch with him during this book i mean exchanging a couple of text messages do you think he even wants to get back in the nba um i don't think he's yearning to it i think he's like he's somebody who would probably be like you know say i'm open to all things um you know um i'm open to all ideas all that kind of stuff you know i never i'm always looking for the future blah 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 um but i don't think he's like you know scratching and clawing to get back in so what's he up to now he is living the Silicon Valley life, um, you know, investing and playing that whole game and meeting people. I always say the best, honestly, if anyone wants to know, and it's like not good to tout other people's stuff, but like the best story about Sam Hinkie, um, in terms of if you want to know who he is and what he's doing now, like SI, Chris Ballard for SI, a couple years ago, a few years ago, wrote a profile and it's fantastic. And he's he's got Hinkie being his weird self, like asking, like, shouldn't we watch? Maybe we should watch games, basketball games backwards, because I don't I don't even remember what the reason was. Something about, you know, time influences the way we think. I don't know. But uh, he's doing exactly if I tell you Sam Hinkie's living in Silicon Valley and investing and taking meetings with people like he is doing exactly what you think that means, what you think he's doing. Well, to tie a bow on the uh, on the Hinkie stuff before we go into, I guess, 
what's now phase two of the 76ers plan. Do you think, you know, do you think he was successful at what he did in terms of just like getting them positioned for where they are now? Because there's a clear contrast of the moves that he made and the moves that we'll be talking about in a second now that the Sixers, you know, developed into something good because it's almost like the antithesis of everything he would have done. Um, so do you think that he was ultimately successful? Because he did um, get two guys that are kind of blue trippers, even though they may not fit together. And we're going to get to that in a second. But yeah, I think when you boil it down, the answer is yes. Right. There are a lot of issues. Um, things didn't go great. You know, part of the job is keeping the job. He obviously didn't do a good job there. Um, but in the end, I do think like they were relevant. They got two superstars. They matter. They're a contender. So, yeah, I would say yes. So let's look at the 76ers now. Because they're officially in phase two of the, uh, I guess, the process. They they accumulated the assets. They got the they got the blue chippers um, in Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Now, so they made that jump where they made the playoffs for the first year, and that kind of shifted the organization. And again, it's it's a new uh, general manager, a new front office, but they made a clear shift in terms of like after one year. Moving toward to yeah, moving towards a, a win now mode. Now, do you think they kind of moved to win now mode too quickly? Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure, they accelerated the timeline really quickly. The Cal- Brian Colangelo and I guess Jerry, but mostly Brian did. Um, they were big on the uh, the, what was it the twenty eighteen free agency class, right? I think that was it, right? Yeah, was it twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen, right? LeBron, this is LeBron. Yeah, like LeBron, who else, I forget who else was there. Um, Paul George, Kawhi, right? They were big on that class. Um, they wanted to go get one of those guys um, or someone else. That was, it, excuse me, they wanted to be in position um, to make sure they had the cap room and like the players in place that one of those guys would take them seriously. And rightfully so. I mean, who doesn't want to go employ those guys? Right, but I, I do the right. But the acceleration of the timeline definitely led to mistakes. Um, that those like that. And then the Fultz trade would be the two things that sort of left the cupboard bare. It's funny. Like I remember sitting with Brian Colangelo. I don't remember what my first conversations with him was around the right. I guess it was that playoff season. Right. And him talking about how important that cap number was the, uh, the cap space. Um, so yeah, no, just really interesting though. I, again, if just, they put themselves in a position where, you know, you swing a couple times and if you don't hit every time you're in trouble. I mean, the Fultz trade was a, was an unmitigated disaster. The fact that they attached another first round pick to move up to up from three to one. I mean, that was the most antithesis, excuse me, the most antithesis hinky move of all time. uh, It seems like, but I guess I wanted to focus on the the, the trading of Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris. Uh, I was pro the Jimmy Butler deal. Um, I feel like I, it didn't end well, but I feel like I was validated in a sense where that Toronto series, when they couldn't generate offense and Simmons was was being a no-show because he can't shoot or whatever, that Butler made all the big plays down the stretch uh, in closing out those games. Now, the Tobias Harris trade uh, and then signing was the one that was you know a little bit of a head-scratcher. When you first saw that trade and who was involved in that trade? What was your initial reaction? Yeah, the Tobias Harris trade was, I mean, it was exciting from like, oh, look at this starting five, but it was not a good trade. And it was, you know, there are lots of people, thought, talking people around the league, a lot of people thought that or said the same thing um, back then, right? One, they did the trade, I think, two days before the deadline. Um, so, you know, it's like anyone who's done fantasy sports, right? If like you propose a trade and the other person says yes really quickly, right, it probably means uh, we're not doing something right here. Um, yeah, that's probably but, true. But they gave up a ton. They gave Landry Shaman. They gave up um, the 2021 unprotected heat pick, and I believe another first round pick. Um, if you look at like what superstars get, like that that package is as good as a package as almost you can get for anyone. Like if they took that package around the league, they I don't know who they could have gotten. Maybe like they could have gotten a lot of guys, right? Um, that's a really high package, and it's not. Tobias Harris is a very good player, really good guy, um, but he's not a superstar, and they gave up a lot for him. They did it with a team who we now know had to want to get had excuse me had no interest in re-signing Harris that upcoming summer right so well, especially so, for that number 
Right, so they had the Sixers had the leverage in those deals. Um, yeah, that was not a good trade, and that's the one that's kind of left them strapped a little bit. Like, and for Jimmy, they didn't give up much, so that that's a different thing, and that obviously worked well. Jimmy's a better player. The Harris trade was the issue. So why didn't they do whatever they could to keep Jimmy Butler, or was it that uh, Jimmy just wanted out? Um, it's I mean it was just, the breakup was happening, right? It's like one of those I don't know who broke up with who. Um. You know, Jimmy Butler and Brett Brown do not get along. Brett Brown's non-confrontational. Jimmy Butler is the definition of confrontational. Um, from some other reasons, like schematic things. Um, yeah, but uh, but that, I mean, that'd be my short answer, right? So I, I would have loved to have seen Jimmy Butler stay there. I also love to see Jimmy Butler where he is now in Miami. I think he's been awesome this year. I, I really like the Heat and their chances in the playoffs. Well... Assuming maybe we'll get a playoffs. Who knows? Um, I, I guess if you had to boil it down, so which one was more of a disaster, the Tobias Harris trade or the Hal Orford signing, which both could easily be the end of Brett Brown? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I guess the Horford signing was a miss. Was a miss, and you know a lot of people read that wrong incorrectly. Um, and it's easy to look back in hindsight, and I do this and say, "Why would you get another big man? You need other shooters." But if you remember, like a lot of people thought this was a good deal. Um, the basic idea being, last year the the, the Sixers lost like, to the Raptors because when Joel Embiid was off the court, they hemorrhaged points. Right? I forget the number; it's something ridiculous. Like, they, you know, they were outscored by like a hundred points in seven games when Embiid was off the court. Right? Um, so if you figure, okay, we sign, we just plug in a top center there. You always have an all-star center on the court. Boom, we're done. We're fixed. Um, that clearly was wrong. I guess the Harris trade, that created more issues because they you then have to max him because you can't trade those guys for him and not sign him. So you that straps you cash wise, um, cap-wise. And you lost a bunch of assets. That's, uh, that would be my answer. Now, obviously, the big question and all those things, you know, the Hartford signing was bad to pay that much money for basically Embiid insurance. Uh, I actually was one of the people who questioned it at the time. I'm not even going to pat myself on the back because I've had many misses in my day. But the big question is you have Embiid and Simmons, right? Well, I want to hear the misses. What are the amazing misses? Oh, what are the amazing misses? Oh, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, I, you know what? Now you're putting me on the spot. I should have prepared more <laughs> for this. Um, some of the misses. I thought the uh, – I've always – I thought the Carmelo Anthony trade – was going to be great for Oklahoma City. That wasn't really the case. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, I I don't want to say I defended the James Harden trade, but I was like, it's not the worst. That that didn't age very well. That, that that's probably the worst one. Not absolutely panning the James Harden trade when it went down, and not. Not realizing that they could have amnestied Kendrick Perkins. I, I don't want to go down the uh, the rabbit yeah. hole of the J, the James Harden deal from Oklahoma City because uh, that I mean that is that's probably the most impactful trade of the last fifteen years in the NBA and it has completely sh- reshaped the outlook of multiple different franchises. But anyway, back to the Sixers. Uh, Embiid and Simmons, right? They're two blue chip players. Uh, Embiid is a top 10 player in the league when healthy and right. Simmons, a top 15, 20 guy. Both guys are all NBA caliber. But the fit because of Simmons' shooting ability and his unwillingness to shoot is a, a bit of still a major question mark. So I ask you this. If you had to choose one to build your team around, who would you choose? And given though, the stoppage of the season – and uh, and Philly was extremely disappointing going into where they you know ended the season right now. They were going to be like the sixth seed. They were projected to go to the finals by so many people. Is Brett Brown the, the guy to figure this thing out between Embiid and Simmons? Um, Embiid's a better player. I'll take Simmons because longevity, right? I just bet on him in terms of being around longer. Um, uh, is Brett Brown the guy? Um no, I'd say probably his voice has grown stale there. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily all his own fault. Um, I also think just you know, not me making the decision, but just I, I'd expect him not to be there come next season. Also, um, so I guess that, that would those two that would be the the answers, or those would be the answers to your questions. Well, do you, you don't think the stoppage of the season or the delay of the season will give Brown another chance because they don't want to, I guess, do their due diligence on somebody else. 
It could. Um, I mean, yeah. Listen, this is all uncharted territory. Territory. Um, all weird stuff. Um, the I I don't I don't expect the season to return, and I think that's going to be pretty obvious sooner than we think. And uh, and and I think from there, you know, I think that I have a feeling the Sixers will be ready to move on. So you would pick Simmons over Embiid. Now, what kind of players would you put around? Ben Simmons and, and where how do you see him maximizing his strengths is it him being like in the Giannis Antetokounmpo role like yeah I mean that's the goal right he's not as big or strong he's not as good as Giannis in just every facet but that would be the thing right you surround him with shooters um and you know that team could probably do really really well could they win a championship I don't know but it'd be interesting to see but yeah Giannis would be the mold for sure well, Embiid was putting up monster numbers when Simmons was hurt this year, and Simmons put up great numbers when Embiid was hurt this year. And I know some of the adma- advanced metrics you know, are, are kind to when they're both on the floor and when Horford was off the floor. I ultimately think you know, they're not going to cut bait with either one of those guys now because they can't. I don't think they'll get the proper return back. But if I had to pick one, I'd pick Embiid only because just the upside is, is there. And if he pans out like he's he's a monster I, yeah that would just I, be my thing no i hear you listen i hear you it's um i don't i mean i don't you can't disagree i just i'm worried about the uh i don't i'm worried about it be like i said longevity and being around an elite for three four five more years it's it's a fascinating question they're a fascinating team for when uh basketball resumes so i have to ask you i know you hit on it a little bit but i wanted to you know we have to talk about it a little bit. The idea that uh, the NBA is looking to ideally finish a season, have a playoff. Um, I know there was an idea floated around that they all flock to Vegas, assuming medical clearance and, and everything's okay on that front, playing in Vegas in various hotels and in the Thomas and Mack Center without fans at UNLV, all that kind of stuff. What are you hearing? I mean, I know – Brian Windhorst came out today and was super pessimistic. You just touched on it a little bit earlier, but I guess if you had like your reporter hat on, what are you hearing? What's the latest? First of all, you don't, you don't have to have, and this is not like, you don't have to have a reporter hat on. Like they, they're all going off of um, like the health guidelines. You know, they don't know anything they're separately or different than we right, do. Of them, course. Right? They're going by that. Um, and if you're going by that, it's hard to see like there, nothing's going to resume before, it, like the world's not opening up before June. Right. It seems fairly safe to say for the most part, I shouldn't say the world, the country, maybe the world um, to a point where you feel comfortable getting people in one place. I mean, it's going to be a testing question is the answer, right? Cause the only way to do it is you can make sure you can test guys, quarantine guys, test guys. And this is again, the fans thing is not even close, right? That's, I just don't like, I don't expect fans to be at a game. Um, any point, like, I think it'll be, season. I think it'll be interesting to see if fans even decide to come to games next season, right? I'm sure right. ticket price will be down. Like, why would you go? We're all going to be acting differently. Will you go to a game if you can watch it on TV, where some dude next to you might be coughing? Like, I don't know. Um, so hold so, on one second. I actually, I, I want to push. Uh, there are two things you said. That I, I, I don't really want to push back because I agree to some extent, but we're also creatures of habit, right? Like we all. And, and this is a much lesser extent, but we all make New Year's resolutions and, and we start doing them for a couple of weeks and then we fall off, right? We fall back to, you know, doing what we used to do, what we're comfortable with. So you don't think that that's going to have, you know, that there's going to be some sort of that in, say, September? Um, I think this is different. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, right? But I, I think this is a little different, right? You know, there's never, I know, people are scared and acting differently and aware and fall, you know, um, I just I, I don't know when consumer habits will return to normalcy. Um, and in terms of the NBA, right? So again, it goes back to testing, right? So you need testing available so you can make sure guys are clear. Then, and if you're bringing them into the same locker rooms and all that stuff, right? Otherwise, guys aren't going to want to show up, or you can't even health-wise, you can't do it, right? right. Um, so that all comes back to testing, um, and that I mean, you know, who knows when that one? So that means you have to have the test ready. We have to have these probably rapid type tests, or at least where you can get results quicker. And you have to be at a point where, um, you know, there's no, there's a surplus. Not even, a, it's not even a surplus. There's no issue in terms of numbers because you can't be testing, you know, 50 NBA people. And I'm not just talking about players. I'm talking about assistant coaches, trainers, you know, a camera guy, ESPN's camera guys to put the game on TV, whatever it is. Um, 
you can't be testing all of them if you know a hospital system doesn't have enough tests still. So just you you take check all these things off, and I think the better question will be, you know, will see will the 2020 2021 season start on time? And I think that's going to end up being the real question. Wow. Yeah, we uh, we're there. That's it's un, it's unbelievable how everything just like changed in an instant. Now the 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 thinking of I guess before I let you go that the uh, that the NBA would as a result of this that they were going to get a season back in some capacity that they'd have to a that they'd have to end it by kind of by Labor Day right because they have an issue you know not just going against the NFL but with uh, stadium issues and and whatnot. Do you think that the NBA, through all this, has stumbled onto something interesting where they're gonna where they should start their season, have have the season tip off Christmas Day, and go into July and August and basically compete with baseball because baseball is regional and the NBA is national in terms of the way it's covered, uh, just by the media and by television. So what's the question? Like whether they would like that, whether they want to do that? Do you think that this is something that they're going to implement and it's something that, you know, that they secretly kind of wanted to implement? No, I don't think it's something that they secretly want to want to do. I think it's um, I mean, listen, I think at this point, if the if they're going to want they want the season back as quick as possible. Right. So they're not going to. So I'm going to let's say we operate under assuming that this season is canceled. Right. Um. I think if October they can be games back on and they're good with that, I think they'll be more like they're they're not going to push it further than they have to. If it starts getting messy and they can package it as something, okay, this is cool, we'll do that. Then sure, you know everything will be on the table. I mean, everything is going to be on the table anyway going forward because it's all about the TV revenue, right? And you, the idea that you know you're going to have to you have contracts. I'm sure there'll be some requirement to give money back in some way but you want to limit that as much as possible that's where the money comes in um but no i think i mean they want the games back as quickly as possible it's it's just it's wild times man it's absolutely wild times yes it is i i i can't believe it i'm, I'm still going stir crazy uh as i mentioned uh I, oh one last thing i guess sure because we spoke about on a lighter note, because I want to end things on a lighter note. I keep things light here on this podcast, try and joke a little bit, you know, have a good time. Uh, but the Porzingis trade, all right? <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm a masochist tonight. Talk about uh, the, the ending of the NBA season and the Porzingis trade. Is it safe to say that the Knicks lost the Porzingis trade? What? Did you ever think that they didn't lose it? No, I thought that they lost it immediately. And the beauty of having a podcast is you can go back to your old episodes and and prove to people that you're on the right path. But, you know, everybody was that I spoke to was so for it because of opening the two max slots. Yeah, those are fans. Knicks fans are also are often very dumb, and so I say lovingly. Um, no, the trade was awful from the beginning. Anyone, awesome. anyone who, anyone who bought that otherwise was you know buying the company line, which great if you're gonna buy the team PR, good for you. But um, no, the trade was awful. You don't you don't trade you don't trade superstar players. You try to you acquire them and you build around them, right? Um, and you do you what you have to do to make the the relationship between the front office and that player good. You don't just push them out the door for five cents on the dollar yeah that yeah exactly in the two max slots right so the idea being that you think you had some kind of commitment from Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and thinking that that commitment in January means anything it's just naive um no the trade was awful I do though believe uh and we'll end on this I do believe that if Kevin Durant had not torn his Achilles in the playoffs that he actually would have come to the Knicks um I this do is, this not is something I, I believe well well, I guess I'm uh, I'm the uh, I'm just following the Knicks company line or leading with yeah. my heart. I mean, I'm the same guy who who willingly watched Game Seven. I mentioned it on my monologue. I watched Game Seven of the '94 NBA Finals back just so I can feel what it's like to have the pain of being a sports fan again. I mean, it that that that's where I'm at. That's uh, that's funny. No, I was I respect it. I just yeah, the Knicks. Um, no, they they was they struck out. They, it was just the trade was awful. And the idea being that you can't clear cap space to get a guys like you know the Nets trade Torian Prince, right? You just you do it. You, like the guys can come if the guys are gonna come to you, they can come to you. You deal with it later, right? You don't trade star players. You don't use star players nice even if they space. yeah even if they have injury concerns. You don't use them to clear cap space unbelievable it still makes me mad anyway Yaron, thank you so much for for doing this uh for Thanks, taking buddy. the time out to uh, to chat with uh 
more of an up and comer than you're used to. Uh, really, really appreciate the time. The book is awesome. So everybody go out. It's a great read, Tanking to the Top by your own Weitzman about the Philadelphia 76ers. It's really good for any sports fan, uh, especially if you're a basketball fan. And if you're those of us who are observing the holiday of Passover, you need uh, something to read, uh, a quick read. This is this is the book for you. I, I, I can't uh, endorse it enough. And I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the for the love of the game show. And uh, hopefully uh, our our pessimism is uh, miraculously. I don't even know. Oh, we could get games sooner rather than later. I don't know how, but I, I'm still holding out hope until Woj tweets something. Is this a uh, name for love of the game because of the movie or just because? No, you know what? I, it originally was uh, called "You're Welcome" because I had I being a a Jewish kid from Great Neck. I think my opinion is uh, is more important and carries more weight than anybody else's. So it was kind of that. But when I I really get started getting serious about this thing and trying to build this, um, and who knows where it's going to go. But the when I first started putting my shows up on iTunes, for, "You're Welcome" was way. T- way more populated than for the love of the game. And that was just like, I guess it's the backup, but yeah, the movie's great, but I I just, you know, game of sports, game of life. I just, I just like the name. The, um, you're welcome. Was this before or after Moana? Or do you not even, you don't have kids. You don't even know what I'm talking about. No, of course I know what the movie is. I mean, I I love the rock. I've actually never seen it. I guess it's on my to-do list while, uh, we're in, somewhere quarantine or social distancing is to watch Moana, but no, it was, it was before that. It had nothing to do with Moana. Man. Okay. So the, so the rock stole your song. Lin-Manuel Miranda stole your song. Yes. Yes, he did. All right. Well, anyway, guys, uh, again, thank you to, uh, your own, your own. This was awesome. Really appreciate it. And, uh, stay sane, man. Stay healthy, stay sane. Uh, and regards to the fam. Thanks man. You too. Have a good one. Speak to you. Yep. Bye. Thanks again to uh, Yaron Weitzman, uh, Bleacher Report writer, NBA writer. Awesome stuff. Go buy the book. Uh, can't really can't stress that enough how good it was and how much I enjoyed reading it. And that's episode 75 for the love of the game. Take us out, Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.